The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 6 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland, although not in Labrador. And beyond the Americas, 10 p.m. in London and Dublin, 11 p.m. in Warsaw and Budapest, midnight in Kiev and Moscow, now in the same time zone, if not yet the same country, half past one in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone, 2.45 a.m. in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 5 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. I'm very sorry about that. 8 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, a far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri. And uh, deep into Saturday for our listeners in the Pacific. 1,400 years ago today, April the 8th, 622, uh, Anno Domini, April the 8th, 622, Prince Shotoku of Japan died. He's, his, uh, his is the... Earliest known citation of Japan as the land of the rising sun, he sent a letter to Emperor Yang of China's Sui dynasty, sending greetings, quote, from the sovereign of the land of the rising sun to the sovereign of the land of the setting sun. There's a lot more competition for the land of the setting sun now, don't you find? Uh, Nevertheless, let us get to it. Eileen Robertson asks, Mark... What can the American people do or demand in order to clean up shop at the FBI and the DOJ? The January the 6th defendants are being acquitted and the kidnapping plot of Michigan Governor Whitmer was clearly planned and not uh, foiled by the FBI. Who is watching the watchman? America is not supposed to be a country where citizens should be terrified of law enforcement agencies or government. But here we are. Uh, That's true. That's true. You're not supposed to fear policemen, which is all the FBI are. Um, I I often quote with reference to the appalling decline of the British police, uh, Sir Robert Peel's famous line that the police are the public and the public are the police. That's not true in Britain, but at least the wanker coppers Uh, cannot kill you in the generality of uh, experience with uh, those policemen. Um, But something very dark is going on because these are political. The kidnapping, it's not just that the FBI are plotting crimes and then perpetrating them, which is 
basically uh, what's going on in some of these cases, but that these are politicized crimes. So that they plotted the they plotted this kidnapping of uh, Governor Whitmer in Michigan uh, as a political act to hurt the opponents of Governor Whitmer, which is to say people who don't vote Democrat. And again, I've said this before. I've been, I've been saying it for years, and I've, I'm not saying anything I haven't said on Fox. I said it on Tucker two minutes before Sean Hannity came on air. I said, with all great respect to our friend Sean Hannity, he uh, shouldn't be going around doing this crapola about how, oh, the FBI, I know these FBI agents. Does he still wear that stupid belt? I know these FBI agents. They're salt of the earth. They're all the No, they're not. It's a rotten organization all the way down. And the correct point of view for a conservative who believes in limited government and government accountable to the citizenry is uh, that this agency has demonstrated itself to be beyond reform and should be dissolved, liquidated, replaced by something with far fewer powers. Now, I often go on, I often quote Conrad's thing about how uh, the federal justice department wins 97% of its cases without ever going to court. Uh, and when they do go to court, they win 99%. And I had a couple of nice uh, DOJ guys in Chicago at Conrad's own trial. Uh, they were fans of mine, and they wanted to go for a drink afterwards, and we were sitting in a bar, and they were saying, well, you know, yes, that seems a high statistic, but it's basically because we only prosecute the bad guys. Uh, well, uh, no, right now you're prosecuting and ruining the lives of ordinary American citizens. I can't tell you how, and again, this isn't just the usual bent copper thing. We're not talking about corrupt cops here being on the take, you know, for a little bit of uh, drug proceeds, drug bus proceeds or whatever. We're talking about specifically politicized crimes. Now, I'm told by the wankers at Cumulus Radio, for example, uh, as you know, I've made, a, uh, made quite a bit of this thing, uh, whatever it was, over a year ago um, in, in, in the period... Uh, between the uh, election and around the insurrection and so forth, when Cumulus said you can't uh, you can't say uh, there was election fraud and expect to keep your job at Cumulus Station. So suddenly all the big butch boys like Mark Levin fell silent about it. And I didn't feel fall silent about it. I called out Cumulus. I don't think it does any good. All a talk show, all a guy in the commentary business has going for him. He has nothing going for him except uh, his integrity. So once you start uh, suggesting to the public uh, that that your hosts are, are only taking the positions they take because you've told them they'll be fired if they do otherwise, you're actually undermining your business model. That's how big a wanker is running Cumulus. And um, so... So I think, uh, I, for, for a start, uh, when people say, people, this is something the, the left did on an industrial scale after November 3rd, 2020. If you suggest the 
election was not on the up and up, you're undermining democracy. Well, Hillary Clinton had spent the previous four years suggesting the 2016 election was not on the up and up, and a lot of her fellow Democrats agreed with her. Now, uh, in this case, in this case, uh, move on to the next stage, undermining faith in democracy. You have here a politicized FBI staging fake political crimes in order to tar the people who do not vote Democrat. Uh, you don't think that doesn't undermine uh, uh, faith in democracy? You know, America's electoral system is complete and utter crap anyway, uh, by the standards of Denmark or Slovenia or whoever you want, or Hungary, actually, given that they've just held an election, and indeed the French Republic, which will be holding an election uh, this weekend. Um, so what I think is, and this is what it's all about, you know, we're never going to get it, as long as Sean Hannity... And I, I like Sean. I've got nothing against Sean. But it's possible, I know Americans may find this hard to believe, it's possible to like people you disagree with. And in this case, I disagree with Sean when he keeps going on about the salt of the earth FBI. Nobody at the FBI has objected to any of the shenanigans we know have been going on for five. The, the ones he reports on or did. It's been a while uh, since uh, I've seen his show, but when I did used to watch it, he would always be talking to people about, you know, getting the scoop on what Peter Strzok did when, uh, and what he said in this particular text versus what, it, you know, he was all about that. But the fact of the matter is that as long as you, oh, the, I know these, these G-men, they're salt of the earth. It's just... <laughs> Those, that FBI is dead. And I want to, all I want now, I'm in a hurry. I'm in a hurry because it, everything takes too long. I know how long, from personal experience, the amount of energy it took to uh, get that Canadian hate speech law, one section of it, repeal of the Canadian Human Rights Act. I know how exhausting it is. We're nowhere where we need to be in the public conversation. And one reason is because people on the right are doing Nancy Boy stuff. I know these. I'm proud as I, I know all these brave, stout-hearted G-men. They gave me a badge. Uh, they gave me a complimentary T-shirt and a mug. So I'm proud to say that these are salt-of-the-earth G-men. It's rubbish. You're not helping. Uh, we need to get the conversation moving faster because the trouble is, you know, again, there's no point to politics in a corrupt crap hole, which in large part is what America's degenerated into. So, yes, you can say, oh, well, people, they're very concerned about inflation. Uh, they don't like the price of gas at uh, the pumps. Uh, they don't like all this critical race theory in the school board election. And by the way, have you seen how the school board elections are going? We've knocked off a couple of the critical race theory guys. Yes, that's because even the Democrats can't afford uh, to steal every school board election. But they can afford to steal big time elections. And uh, as long as they've got corrupt agencies like the FBI and the DOJ on their side... Uh, they've got uh, that sense. So what we what we need is is we need people just to start. The FBI decided to take one side. Okay, 
Man up, you Republican jokes, and treat them as if they've chosen a side. And dare the other guys, the salt of the earth guys that Sean Hannity uh, claims he's hanging around with all the time, dare the salt of the earth guys to call out their corrupt colleagues. And if they don't do that, then we have to move, move things on. But the thing is, the conversation is nowhere near where it needs to be. That's the problem. Douglas says, Mark, how could Trump possibly run a forward-looking, issue-driven campaign in 2024, given that many will attempt to focus on his personality and January the 6th. Uh, Thanks, Douglas. Yeah, actually, Nigel Farage, after uh, interviewing Trump, made the same point, uh, that, that elections are about tomorrow, not yesterday. So he has to develop, he can't, Uh, The rally, as I've said, the rally thing isn't going to do it for him because the people who attend the rally is already going to vote for him. The the question is, uh, the question is, uh, as I actually said in 2020, is not just can he change the minds of enough people who didn't vote for him last time, uh, if and this is if America had honest elections, like uh, say uh, Denmark, um, but can he change enough minds and then some to overcome the level of Democrat fraud? And I am inclined to agree that if it's a backward-looking campaign, uh, then he's not going to do that. And also, I don't think I don't think he can do it on making it about him. Um, I don't think he can do that. I think he can do it if he makes it about his record, if he makes it about what he did in those four years. Um, but I don't think the the shtick at the rally is is going to do it for him. Um, Dale Owen says, Mark, has the GOP become, and, and I would say that, you know, I'd, I'd just make this point. It's particularly true about personalities. Personalities devour material. Um, it's 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 like when radio started, and all the vaudeville, vaudevillians discovered they'd used up a decade's worth of material uh, in, in in their first month on radio because they couldn't just go from town to town to town doing the same old thing night after night. You did it on the radio. Everybody heard it. That's it. It's gone. You need new material. And that's true of personalities in politics when you're living in the 24-hour news cycle. Um, I, I first made this point about Sarah Palin. I think I offered, in fact, uh, I can't remember where it was. I ran into her and I offered uh, to write her some new moose jokes or whatever. And at that point, you know, some wanker from the McCain campaign <laughs> interceded. And, uh, and that was that. Uh, Dale Owens writes, uh, Mark, has the GOP become the party of Trump or has it remained the party of, speaking of the man himself, has it remained the party of John McCain? How do you see today's GOP? Well, I see today's GOP as generally insufficient. Uh, The great thing about Trump was that he had actually very little to do with them 
So he, he didn't talk about the things that they wanted to talk about. Right now, uh, the powder keg goes up in Ukraine and the morons in the Republican Party completely forget the fiasco of Afghanistan and uh, Lindsey Graham and all the rest of these guys start demanding boots on the ground in, in Ukraine. No, 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 no. You can't win wars. It's not fair to the Ukrainians for you to make it about you. Uh, you know, whatever you feel about Ukraine and Russia, pick a side. Uh, I know a lot of people seem to uh, think the Ukrainians are all Nazis, want them to lose to Putin. Fine, fine, fine. Uh, my main priority on this is ensuring that the poor Ukrainians don't have to get screwed over uh, by an American intervention led by buffoons like Lindsey Graham. And what that tells me, what that tells me is that it's not Trump's party. Uh, that in large part, the sort of people who make the running in the Republican Party are not on board. What one was the Trump agenda? Right? You haven't got a border, right? So if you haven't got a border, you haven't got a country. We see that now. We see that now. As I said, uh, three and a half million people are predicted to enter America illegally between now and the end of September. And Joe Biden wants to take money from you to give to illegal aliens breaking into your country. So it's not just that they're breaking into your country. It's that you have to pay for them when they've broken into your country. It's, it's, like, the, uh, it's like the burglar breaking into your house and uh, then tell him, telling you to go and cook him a haunch of venison. Uh, this... This is, uh, this is stupid. And yet the only time it took Trump, Trump was, you know, that moment in 2015 when he came down the elevator and said Mexico wasn't sending its best was a weird point in American politics because it suddenly became real. We'd had all the campaign had been chuntering along for a few months with Jeb and, uh, you know, Marco Rubio calling for, a, what was he calling for, a second American century, and John Kasich doing his son of a mailman thing. It's, it's crap, isn't it? It's just like rubbish. It's all, it's, per, it's personality driven by people with personalities you wouldn't entertain for a moment. The only one who issued, who, who introduced any real issues was the personality, Trump. And I don't think he has taken over his party. I think the party's instincts are generally terrible and they're led. And whether you're talking about the Tea Party, whether you're talking about Trump, whether you're talking about the school board mums uh, objecting to the bollocks that's being taught in American grade schools, all this stuff is driven by the grassroots and the party is obliged to go along with it reluctantly. That's just the way it is. Gerard Dillon says, hello, Mark, I know you were an early supporter of Trump, but where do you stand on him now, specifically in regard to him running again? Does his unseemly admiration of Putin and the fallout from January the 6th make him even more unlikely to win in 2024? Is it time to move on, says Gerard, who writes from Concord, New Hampshire, my state capital. 
which is whatever it is, two or three hours uh, down the road, but fortunately a world away in many. Not nothing. Not saying anything against the town, Gerard. Quite like the town, but uh, the uh, I don't know about state capitals, actually. I prefer it to Montpelier, Vermont, I'll say that. But anyway, that's damning with faint praise. I'll move on. Uh, Gerard says, uh, or Gerard, however uh, Gerard or Gerard says it. Um, look, it's his call. I'll tell you why. You know, he was robbed in, uh, he was robbed in 2020. Uh, he was subjected to things that are quite disgraceful. He was subjected to, even if you just take the liberals at their word, he was subject to the fortifying of the election, as Time magazine put it, the fortification of the election by forces he didn't know he was running against. Then, as the Washington Post and New York Times have admitted, and uh, we, we had the most naked attempt to put the thumb on the scale by the media in a supposed free society. I mean, people go on about how, you know, oh, uh, Victor Orban's uh, control, Victor Orban controls all the media in Hungary. You're an American. You don't get to say that. Your media is the crappest on the planet. Uh, because they 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 don't need they didn't need to do this, but the court eunuchs, as I call them, because I don't understand. You know, I I was proud to work in Fleet Street when I did, because they were all sleazy, scummy, disreputable. What, what did uh, they used to call them? The reptiles, I think. The reptiles. They they, they weren't acceptable in polite society because they were sleazy. Uh, dirty people who went swimming around in murk to get the goods on you. And the court eunuchs of the American media can be, oh, yes, no, I, I went to all the trouble of uh, running up a quarter million dollars in, uh, in student loan debt to go to Columbia Journalism School uh, just so I could do everything the Democrats tell me to do. Um, so, no, I've seen, yes, I've seen this stuff about uh, Hunter Biden, but it's Russian disinformation, uh, a, a big bunch of uh, uh, security national intelligence people signed a letter to that effect. He's entitled to feel robbed, Trump. He really is. And so in that sense, it's his call whether he decides, I can quite understand it, you know, uh, the, the trouble is he's the kind of guy who gets mad when he's better off getting even. You, need, you, don't, you don't need uh, the bluster uh, of a Trump performance about being robbed. You need one of those cool uh, Bond villain types, you know. I'm, I'm afraid you're going rather tiresome, Mr. Biden and then presses the button and uh, Biden goes into the shark tank. Uh, you need that. You need a certain, you need in that excellent American expression, uh, you uh, don't get mad, get even. And I'm not sure whether he has the discipline uh, to do that. Um, I think January the 6th, I don't, I, he needs other people to talk about January the 6th, or he needs brilliant people to write Four throwaway lines. Now, I say this, you can take this any way you want, because I was pro-Trump before all these people like Mark Levin 
and indeed Sean Hannity. I was I was pro-Trump before Rush, before Sean, before Levin. And uh, unlike uh, unlike Sean, I wasn't dining. I didn't get to dine at the uh, White House uh, three nights a week. And unlike Mark Levin, uh, you know, all these people, Glenn Beck, who uh, was uh, had guests on his show advocating the assassination of Trump. Trump made a huge mistake. You know, most of those people, including Glenn Beck and Mark Levin, simply changed uh, to, to protect their bottom line. And uh, my, my view is that Trump makes, made a great mistake uh, listening to those people. Uh, there were other people who were there at the beginning that he didn't listen to, and he'd have been in much better shape in November 2020 if he danced with them what brung him or whatever that stupid expression is. Um, so my view of that is that Trump needs, he needs three great lines if January the 6th comes up. And he needs three great lines on Putin, which is easier, easy to do, easy to do. Um, but he also needs some new material, forward material, and he needs to and, and he needs to get the kids out of the way, keep the kids out of the way, uh, Ivanka and uh, Jared, because uh, uh, nobody voted for them. And he needs uh, not to concentrate on the on the ever Trumpers. Uh, but he needs to win back some of those old white men in those Rust Belt states who voted for him in 2016 and not in 2020. So he's got a difficult job. The mo I, very, I sympathize with this. Uh, I, sort of <laughs> I sort of understand what, I'm, uh, what he's uh, going through because it's interesting. People forget you very quickly. Uh, in politics, as in show business, and in a lot of other things in the public arena. So there's a lot of Americans who think I'm dead because uh, I'm not on uh, Tucker and I uh, don't guest host for Rush anymore. And you can say, you say to them, well, well, I've got a daily, nightly primetime show in the UK now. It's, it doesn't mean it. You're still dead to them because uh, they'd rather you were talking about Andrew Cuomo's dog on, on Tucker. Uh, that kind of celebrity fades very quickly. And that includes political celebrity, too. You know all these people, uh, these, these uh, congressmen and senators who retire after six decades in the Senate or whatever, and no one, six weeks later, it's as if they were never there. No one remembers them. And so Trump has a tough job staying relevant. Um, he has a tougher job staying relevant to people who aren't his hardcore fans. Um, and so it's very important that there's, a, that, there's a, that there's a 2015 Trump recast for 2023 with lots of new material and self-discipline enough just to have the three or four words, three or four lines on January the 6th and no more. So people don't go to a Trump rally and feel they're hearing about ancient history, which in American politics means anything that happened before a week and a half ago. 
It's vitally important that he has the discipline to do that. And he actually, I would add this, he should have the discipline as well uh, to stay away from fair weather friends such as Glenn Beck and, uh, and Mark Levin, although your mileage may vary on that. We will have lots more of your questions still to come on this Friday Clubland Q&A back at our regular day after the fiasco of last week. So uh, stick around uh, for more of those questions. But first, as always, a sense of perspective. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A war in China, a siege in Dublin, and a tempest in a teapot. It's April 1922. A hundred years from today. news update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues, but representatives of 34 countries are meeting in Genoa to try to do something about it, at least with respect to global economic problems. This conference is different because for the first time, Bolshevik Russia is participating as a player in international affairs. There was some talk that Comrade Lenin himself might attend, but he has chosen not to for issues of personal security. Instead, his foreign minister, Georgi Chicherin, is in Genoa in hopes of gaining diplomatic recognition of his regime from the great powers. China town is as agreeable as that Chinatown. In Peking, war has broken out between the two political factions that control China's highly nominal government. The Fengtian clique replaced the Chinese premier without first obtaining consent from the Zhili clique. And the Zhili are not happy about it. The Zhili are backed by the British and Americans. The Fengtians by Japan. 100,000 Zhili troops are now battling 120,000 Fengtian troops for control of Peking. French military authorities serving as part of the Inter-Allied Commission in Upper Silesia were informed that munitions had been buried in a graveyard near the Hoyton smelting works in Gleivitz. French soldiers were dispatched to investigate. Eleven of them were killed by a bomb blast. In the boldest strike yet against the new Irish Free State, 300 members of the Irish Republican Army, led by Rory O'Connor, have seized and occupied the Four Courts in Dublin. The Four Courts building 
is the centre of judicial authority in Ireland, although the original four courts, Chancery, Exchequer, Common Pleas and the Court of King's Bench have diminished, merged and been substituted. The building has retained its name and is known as such to every Dubliner. Shortly after midnight, a group of IRA scouts uh, diverted the three policemen on duty While the main body of men scaled the walls, the IRA now controls the courthouse, the adjacent Victoria Hotel, the town hall, the post office and the police barracks. And they appear to be settling in for a long siege. Michael Collins' provisional government is mulling its options. child is an angel in heaven. Have you seen him smile? Have you talked to him? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has. The creator of the famous consulting detective Sherlock Holmes has arrived in New York to conduct an American lecture tour on spiritualism. Upon disembarking from the White Star liner, the Baltic, he told the gentlemen of the press, I know absolutely what I am going to get after death, happiness. It is not mere hearsay. I have have talked with and seen 20 of my dead, including my son, when my wife and other witnesses were present. The state of Massachusetts will allow women henceforth to be eligible to hold all public offices, including that of governor. In the case of Balzac versus Puerto Rico, the Supreme Court has ruled that although citizens of Puerto Rico are United States citizens, pursuant to the Jones Act of 1917, they do not enjoy the constitutional right to trial by jury guaranteed in the Sixth Amendment. The nine-man court has decided you unanimously that that right does not extend to U.S. territories that have not been admitted into the Union as states. The United States Shipping Board has voted to rename the passenger steamship SS Leviathan, seized from Germany when America entered the war, the SS President Harding. Board Chairman Albert Lasker said the new name had been selected at the urging of two other shipping commissioners, both Democrats, who said that the Republican president had done more than any other man to build the United States Merchant Marine. That's all very well, but in fact, when the sun is sinking in Wyoming, that's when the dark deals get done. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the Interior Secretary, Albert Fall, 
has secretly leased to a subsidiary of Sinclair Consolidated Oil. The government-owned oil reserves in Wyoming centred around a distinctive rock formation that resembles a teapot, teapot dome, as it is known. Now the Senate has passed a resolution demanding to know whether Mr. Fall granted these leases without notice. The US has been occupying Haiti since 1915. It may seem surprising that after seven years of occupation, they exercise so little control of the country beyond the capital city, but rural areas continue to be plagued by the Cacos and other gangs of armed insurgents. Now, Haiti's state council, which runs domestic affairs under U.S. supervision, has surprised Washington by selecting Louis Borno to become the next president. Mr. Borno has pledged to work with the resident American High Commissioner General Russell to improve the general situation in Uncle Sam's ramshackle protectorate. Offer by radio, you will find it radio. You can now love her by radio in North Carolina, which has its first licensed station out of Charlotte. The co-owner, Fred Laxton installed a transmitter in an abandoned chicken coop behind his house and ran the microphone cord all the way to the living room. Et voila! Wireless station WBT. We have reported at some length on the various trials of the picture star Fatty Arbuckle for the death of Virginia Rapp at a debauched party in San Francisco. The third trial is over. The jury was out for just six minutes. They decided unanimously in the first minute that he was not guilty and spent the remaining five minutes composing the following statement, which the foreman read out in court. Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done him. We feel also that it was only our plain duty to give him this exoneration under the evidence, for there was not the slightest proof adduced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand which we all believed. The happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Arbuckle, so the evidence shows was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days to evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. Will Hayes, the former U.S. Postmaster General who now serves as head of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, feels differently. He has banned Fatty Arbuckle from ever again acting in an American motion picture and has ordered all showings of Arbuckle pictures to be cancelled. Love that song, and now it's on Broadway. It's a big number in the sensational new show at the Winter Garden, Make It Snappy, starring Eddie Cantor. The New York Sun loves the show and says Al Jolson now has a rival. We'll see what Mr. Jolson has to say about that. Just like the renowned Mammy singer, the New York Philharmonic Orchestra has decided it would like to be on phonograph records and has ventured into the music recording studio for its debut.
debut on disc, an abridged version of Beethoven's Coriolan Overture for the Victor Talking Machine Company, with Willem Mengelberg conducting. Macpherson Smith was an Australian aviator who, with his brother Sir Keith Macpherson Smith, became the first man to fly from England to Australia. The siblings had planned later this month to take off from Croydon on the first aeroplane circumnavigation of the globe. However, on a test flight of their Vickers Viking amphibious plane at the Vickers Works of Brooklands, Sir Ross and his mechanic, Lieutenant Jim Bennett, got into trouble while banking to make a turn and nosedive to the ground from 1,500 feet. Lieutenant Bennett is dead at 28, Sir Ross McPherson Smith. KBE, MC and Bar, DFC and Two Bars, AFC is dead at 29. We all love Gilbert and Sullivan, but John Doban was the man who brought the music and lyrics into life on stage. He was an actor and dancer who created most of the dance sequences in the Savoy operas and popularized uh, what became known in the West End as skirt dancing. As Punch said of him, See Mr. Johnny Doban, he's so quick and nimble, he'd dance on a thimble, he's more like an elf than a man. Alas, Mr. Johnny Doban is dead at the age of 79. Hans Frustorfer was a German insect trader and lepidopterist who wrote many important monographs Although when it came to taxonomy, he had a marked preference for various aspects of male genitalia, he himself will live forever in the name of a rare species of snake in Java, Tetralopis frustorferi, Frustorfer's snake. Herr Frustorfer is dead from a failed cancer operation at 56. Patrick Manson was the grandson of the man who established the Glen Garriock Whiskey Distillery. He chose a different avocation and became a physician. Sir Patrick's research established mosquitoes as the source of malaria, and he is today celebrated as the father of tropical medicine. He founded what is now the Medical School of Hong Kong University and the London School of Tropical Medicine, and became the first president of the Royal Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. His time in China left him with recurring gout. Sir Patrick Manson is dead at 77. Cap Anson was a first baseman and one of baseball's first stars and greatest ever players. He played a record 27 consecutive seasons, mostly for the Chicago White Stockings, now the Chicago Cubs, and was the first to make over 3,000 hits. As a manager, he won a record 1,282 games with his White Stocking Cubs team. Like 
Like many players of his generation, he went into vaudeville upon retirement and did rather well with material written for him by George M. Cohan and Ring Lardner just a few days after becoming manager of a new golf club. Cap Anson is dead, three days shy of his 70th birthday. And that's the way of the world. April 1922. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A live around the planet. Uh, we had a lot of uh, Trumpian questions in the first part of the show. Uh, let's see if we got any non-Trumpies. Oh. <laughs> uh, this is really the antithesis of uh, Trump, as it were. James writes, Mark, thoughts on Jean Charest's bid uh, to become leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Today, he said that Pierre Poilievre is unfit for office because he supported the Freedom Convoy. That's uh, one of his rival leadership candidates. Uh, And, of course, the Freedom Convoy are those great Canadian truckers and their inspirational descent on Ottawa. Uh, Jean Charest, uh, I mean, no reason why many people outside uh, Canada, certainly in America, should know him. He was one of only uh, two... Uh, Tory MPs uh, standing in the great wipeout, national wipeout of the Tory party in in Canada. And he was then prevailed upon to go back and become leader of the Quebec Liberal Party, which is the Federalist Party in Canada. So in other words, uh, in those days, in the 90s, it was the only opposition to the separatist party Québécois. And he became premier of Quebec. And compared to the alternatives, he was a good premier of Quebec and uh, certainly beloved by the business uh, community. And because he is regarded generally as uh, having saved uh, the Canadian Confederation in that 1995 referendum, uh, they called him Captain Canada. Anyway, Captain Canada now wants to come back out of his Quebec retirement and uh, lead the Conservative Party of Canada. And I, I should, I probably should say this. I don't often talk about these kind of things, but uh, until the COVID wrecked everything and closed the uh, Quebec-New Hampshire border, uh, a friend of mine in uh, Quebec uh, on uh, Lac Brume, uh, every summer, uh, a dear friend of mine, every summer he used to convene a. Uh, uh, a, a gathering of uh, you know eight or eight or ten of us, uh, a broadly conservative disposition, for a grand boozy lunch down by the lake uh, that would <laughs> linger leisurely through the afternoon into a grand boozy dinner, and we all enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not, I don't know, uh, we because of the COVID, we haven't uh, had it, but, you know, uh, maybe we'll uh, be able to have it again this summer. I should, I should say uh, that my uh, old boss, uh, Conrad Black, was among those present, and a former senator and a former chief of staff to a uh, prime minister and uh, Monsieur Sharon and, you know, then, you know, the vice president of uh, the uh, Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, former vice president. This had been going on 
I think, almost all the years of this century until the COVID clobbered it. And it's very nice, all a bit Quebecy, Anglos and Francos, and a nice mix. And um, uh, I, I will just say this about uh, Monsieur Charest. He's an awfully pleasant fellow. Um, but I would say that, you know, people come and go and there have been a few deaths among our number. Uh, so it's never quite the same lineup every summer. But I would say that Monsieur Charest is the least conservative man there by some uh, way. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's that's completely sincere on his part, as far as I can tell, is... Objection. Well, as generally speaking, I think his objections to most things are sincerely held. He's a sincere person. My concern, as I said at the top of the show, is that we're not moving fast enough. And that's true not just of politics in the United States, but politics in Canada, uh, in the United Kingdom, in in, in the Anglosphere at large. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of these countries have purportedly right of centre government. Uh, they do in London, they do in Canberra, and it's complete rubbish. It's complete rubbish. And then I look at the continent, and it was interesting to me, I said as a sort of throwaway line to John O'Sullivan, that the thing that... The, why I realise that Brussels and... And the American media are just just don't know Hungary. They don't get it. They don't understand it. I mean, Victor Orban's crime is that he's pals with two people, Putin and Tucker. And, uh, you know, so uh, supposedly. And as far as the Americans are concerned, being pals with Tucker uh, is an even bigger problem than being pals with Putin. But what you get... The sense that is overwhelming in Hungary when you talk to Hungarians, and I was very busy there because I was just in Hungary getting certain logistical things together and then, boom, into Ukraine the next day. Um, and then I, I had a, whatever it was, a couple of days in Hungary on the way back. Now, the thing about it is, uh, so I didn't have a lot of time to talk to people, but all from all the people I did talk to, it's that it's clear that people were at ease with Orban, even if they didn't disagree with him. They didn't mind the subjects he raised. OK, so they might disagree with the policies, but they didn't disagree with him talking about the subjects underlying the policies. And then we have the French situation. The French situation, I think, is largely the same. Éric Zemmour has, uh, you know, moved the Overton window or whatever they call it. And uh, people, talk, people talk about things. If you go back to 20 years, uh, to when um, uh, Marine Le Pen's dad, Jean-Marie Le Pen, got into the final round, of the presidential election. That was an, a political earthquake that convulsed uh, the nation. The nation felt shame at that. Or, you know, the media and the uh, establishment did. Obviously, uh, large numbers of the people didn't because they'd put him in the final round. 
But the point about that, and he got 20% because everyone else ganged up and voted for Chirac and they couldn't stand so that Chirac won 80-20, something like that. And that was a huge convulsive shock. And what's happened since then is it's become the norm. Oh, Marie Le Pen. Oh, yes, she'll be in the... uh, So it's generally the incumbent president versus Marie Le Le Pen. That's how how the election's going to go. You know, and in that time, all the things that Jean-Marie Le Pen talked about and the respectable candidates didn't are now talked about. So the political conversation on continental Europe is way beyond where it is in America or in Her Majesty's Dominions. And this isn't good uh, for us. It would be better if we had the degree, if our public discourse permitted the things that Hungary and France did. Because I'm concerned, I'm all, we're, not, we're not moving fast enough. You know, if you want to save Western civilization, you got, you got to have, you, we can't just be saying, oh, yes, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, Canadian conservatives are ready for that. So we had, you know, Andrew Scheer, he was a bit too strong meat. Erin O'Toole was a bit, you know, at some point, you've, you've got to remember the Bill Buckley dictum of, uh, of, of picking the most uh, conservative guy who can get elected. And the thing is, that doesn't mean you settle early. You don't say, OK, uh, let's look for uh, the Susan Collins of Ottawa. It doesn't mean that. Um, and that's, that's my problem. Now, as I said, Monsieur Charret is a likable fellow. He's a pleasant fellow. But uh, in my experience, he's always the least conservative guy in the room. And I'm not sure that's what Canadian conservatives or UK conservatives or anybody else needs right now. Dan writes, what dirty tricks will be used to stop Marine Le Pen? You know... France has clean. France isn't America, um, and 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 so the idea that the election could be stolen from her, I think, would present a challenge that it doesn't present if you're talking about stealing elections in Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and Georgia, and so forth. So I'm, I think, you know, the, the vote on Sunday will be a reasonably honest vote. I would say this too, though. And again, it, it makes you, this, this is where just doing the, all the, the, the constitutional pom-pom boys of conservative ink don't really help. Um, I, you know, I say this uh, just trying to look at it in a detached uh, manner. But I would say, for example, that uh, insofar as there is a deep state in France, it's a relatively conservative deep state. So, for example, I don't think you would find, you know, a bunch of thoroughly modern Millie types uh who would uh, be prepared to back a military coup to maintain Macron in power. Uh, generally speaking, the commanders of the French military are, uh, are 
not ill-disposed to the likes of Madame Le Pen. The, 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 there is a problem for the future in the French military in that the younger ranks, I mean, they're, they're an awful, uh, essentially Islamist France, as it were, uh, the Les Banlieues and the other no-go areas and all the rest of it. Essentially, insofar as those areas are still part of the uh, French state, they're, they're policed by... <laughs> Uh, Muslim soldiers of the uh, of the French army. If, if there've been a lot of in, because of the state of emergency, uh, there've been a uh, what summer was that? A couple of summers back when I was in Toulouse and cities that I don't usually go to in France, and you saw all the soldiers on the street. An awful lot of those young soldiers were Muslim. So it might not be the same in uh, 10 years' time, but uh, I would say the, the chance... There's there far fewer thoroughly modern Millie types. You know, France has a lot of problems on its own, but it's not the land of tranny admirals like America. Uh, so I, I think I'm confident. We'll see, we'll see, and we'll be obviously covering that on the Mark Stein Show with uh, Anne-Elizabeth Mute and others on GB News next week. Gary Alexander writes, a question for today's forum. If you watch the Grammy Awards, forget the slap at the Oscars, please. What was your impression as a disc jockey? I forced myself to watch it each year, partly as an excuse to play winners uh, from the first event in May 1959 when Ella and Basie dominated the awards with Peter Gunn and Mac the Knife dominating the charts. Yeah, I think uh, that was the year that uh, Sinatra had his Only the Lonely LP, which is a magnificent album. And the only thing he won for was best sleeve design. Uh, so uh, uh, for me, the Grammys have been popular ever since day one. Uh, Gary says, uh, but I digress. I digressed a bit there. Gary Alexander says, but I digress. I found this year an improvement in that there weren't six songs with the N-word being bleeped out, i.e. less rap. There were only two bleep-worthy songs with the air quotes on songs, since the typical melody star vocal range of the winning entry was three notes top to bottom. Besides Lady Gaga's touching tribute to Tony and a fine vocal quartet honouring Sondheim, there was only one other big band feature drowned out by a yeller. John Baptiste is talented and humble, but thinly spread as his winning cuts were his weakest uh, trendy pop, in my view. Any thoughts, Maestro? I didn't see the Grammys. I can't watch them. I went to them once long ago when a friend was nominated. And I used to be generally... I'm trying to think the last time I had a conversation with anyone about the Grammys. I think it was with... Uh, uh, Rosemary Clooney in the 90s. She'd gotten a nomination for something. And uh, I said, oh, that's going to win. And she said, oh, I don't think so, because Sinatra had won those electronic duets albums up for something. And I said, that's, that's a terrible album. Uh, Frank's never going to get anywhere with that. And Rosie, <laughs> Rosie said a great lie, she goes, because uh, she thought he was going to win. And she, she, she summed it up. She gave me a great line. She was she she had great lines actually Rosemary Clooney uh, she was a very sharp woman she said I don't she said this is Sinatra I don't care how old he gets he's still dangerous 
Anyway, I'm digressing like Gary now. That was the last time I think anyone uh, had a conversation about the Grammys with anyone. Um, I can't stand you, you. You you write. You're looking at. I have a lot of respect for Lady Gaga. And I think some of those things she did with Tony, among the I'm sick of these celebrity duets albums, but some of the stuff she did with Tony Bennett was actually pretty good, actually pretty good. And I I have a sort of I sympath I sympathise with her because she has a genuine affection uh, and talent for interpretation of that kind of material. And she's stuck in this awful situation where 99% of her fans don't want to hear any of that because uh, they're just into the other rubbish. And the other rubbish is why I find the Grammy so hard to watch because, as you say, the two bleepworthy songs with melody star vocal range, it's actually gotten worse. You know, you, you had a... You you can go from the uh, Victorian and Edwardian parlor ballads through ragtime, then the golden years of the American songbook, and then into early uh, rock and roll, which is became sort of adolescent kiddie pop, and then uh, became sort of uh, pretentious concept album uh, rock with impenetrable lyrics, and then disco and all that, and now. What what's what's changed is something more fundamental than that. It's not actually about uh, words and music. The Grammys is a visual show because unless you've got something to look at, like Miley Cyrus's bottom in too small a thong, there is nothing actually in the music and lyrics to hold your attention. Which is why I think. Uh, we're actually moving into an age beyond song, which is weird and creepy and probably uh, merits a whole uh, discussion all to itself. Eric Dale says, Mark, it's been about 30 years from the dissolution of the Soviet Union to the possible end of the U.S. dollar as the world's U.S. currency. How is it that we, America, have squandered so much in such a relatively short period of time? You seem to be one of the few in public life talking about this. I've been trying to look up news on this through our search engines. But the media seems to be actively ignoring what could likely be the next big crisis. Why are the media so reluctant to discuss this? I genuinely think in the case of the media that most people just have no idea how weak America's position is. Most people think, even a lot of people on the right, uh, the line I quoted, I think, with reference to After America, so this is going back over a decade now, uh, that some guy wrote to me said, oh, you don't need to worry about all this stuff. We're rich enough that we can afford to be stupid. Well, we're not really rich. We're the brokey, brokeyest uh, entity in the history of brokenness. And, uh, and we should have learned that now. People should be aware of that now. You connect it to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. In other words, we won the Cold War and then squandered the peace. And the reason for that is that, uh, again, I don't, I don't want to keep saying, as I said 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but in fact, as I said 15 years ago in America alone, 
the victory in the Cold War did not seem like a victory. It didn't seem like we'd won and they'd lost. There was a whole uh, sort of coming together for world peace about it. So fellows like Leonard Bernstein conducted the Ode to Joy at the uh, with the Berlin Philharmonic at the wall, that, that kind of thing. So it was really interesting. You didn't really feel that a superior set of ideas had defeated a crapper set of ideas. There was no sense of that. Generally, when the wall fell, or in the uh, various uh, attitudes of people that followed. So it didn't do anything to arrest the uh, lack of civilizational self-confidence in ourselves. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of bird brain overconfidence set in in, in uh, aspects of American life in particular uh, that should have known better. What was depressing to me, I was... Obviously, you know, after 9-11, I wanted al-Qaeda and its leadership, including Osama bin Laden, taken out. I wanted them dispatched. I wanted them expunged from the planet. Um, what you quickly realized was that basically America had no stomach for that. It, it just fought war ineffectually without strategic war aims. Um, we've talked about this with reference to the Falklands 40th anniversary. Mrs. Thatcher, you can make a lot of criticisms about Mrs. Thatcher, but she knew how to win a war. She didn't use talk about things like exit strategies. And she was, you know, for all that people talk about her friendship with Reagan, when Reagan offered himself as a mediator uh, at uh, in the early days of the Falklands War, Mrs. Thatcher was furious, absolutely furious, you know, because uh, Britain was in the right. Britain was Ukraine. It had had its sovereign territory invaded by an aggressor. And there was uh, Reagan offering himself, he was supposed to be her friend as mediator. And it wasn't until he stopped offering himself as mediator and realized he was uh, her friend and began providing, you know, satellite intelligence on certain Argentine movements and things that she forgave him for that. But she was always clear of what had she she knew how the war ended. The war ended with the Argentines dead or fled back to their lousy Generalissimo packed continent. Uh, and the Union flag flying again at Port Stanley uh, under a British governor. And the inability, the buffoon, you know, the fact that one, well, the other reason, Eric, is uh, America is a land that doesn't punish failure anymore in government. Uh, I, again, I, I made the point, we, we talked about uh, Lord Carrington who was the British Foreign Secretary and thus the one who had principally been in contact with the Arges before the Falklands, he resigned. He, he said there's been a British humiliation and someone has to uh, bear the responsibility for that, and I feel it should be me. And uh, Sir Humphrey Atkins, who was the Lord Privy Seal, and I think his number two also resigned and a third minister resigned. 
Nobody resigned after 9-11. I always love that log uh, to the uh, FAA of all the chatter, all the, all the conversations in the room. You know, the guys kind of, oh, well, uh, some of the planes would be, what do, you, what do you think we should do? And the person on the other end of the telephone at this lavishly funded federal agency says, uh, I don't really know. Everybody just left the room. Everybody just left the room on 9-11. And nobody took responsibility. So, you know, I'm... I, I agree that we squandered the peace. We squandered the peace because we had stupid people like Francis, uh, what's he called, Francis Fukuyama, who wrote The End of History. The, the complacency and arrogance of that has actually, uh, which, which never quite went away, never quite went away. Um, but we now we now see, uh, and and because we didn't celebrate it as a victory, uh, we we actually are in a worse situation because we allowed the ideological undermining by cultural Marxists in America to continue. So that now we are as bonkers more bonkers than almost anyone on the planet. You know, so now we've got this thing, what is a woman? Oh, uh, Supreme Court judge can't say what a woman is. Uh, the leader of the opposition in London can't say what a woman is. The Ministry of Health in Australia can't say what a woman is. Uh, Putin knows what a woman is. Zelensky knows what a woman is. Viktor Orban knows what a woman is. So uh, in all, setting aside the war and all the other stuff going on there, uh, Central and Eastern Europe is way less bonkers than uh, the United States, culturally, culturally uh, speaking. And I think that there has to be an honest discussion about it. Why is Francis Fukuyama, he's just written some uh, usual drivel about how liberal democracy is basically the natural condition of mankind. It's rubbish. It's complete rubbish. It's comp and this is where the parochialism of American discourse, oh, God, no interest in, uh, I, I live 20 minutes south of the Canadian border. I don't pay any attention to anything that's going on there. Never mind, you know, Paris or Moscow or whatever, because, you know, uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm American, so I don't need to. You lose to go turds. You got to get it, knock it off with the parochialism. You got to, that's the other reason you're broke. You're a mercantile republic. Uh, trading with the world on terms that you hope at the end of each year are favorable to you. And that doesn't mean, you know, just saying, oh, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to learn from China. I mean, OK, uh, so, yeah, they're like taking over the world and they're, we shouldn't really. Uh, Eric Bowling, Eric Bowling on, on Fox. I was guest hosting Hannity. And this is the problem. I was guest hosting Hannity on the day America's credit rating was downgraded. Okay, so that's like pretty, it was good news for my book. My book was new then. It was kind of a good thing for it. Um, so I asked Eric Bowling, what do you make of this? And Eric Bowling 
goes, have you seen the other countries and this, the ones with the AAA rating? Norway? <laughs> Norway! We shouldn't even be in the same hit parade as Norway. There should be a separate chart just for us. Yeah, well, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. The, the, the half-wit parochialism is screwing you. It's killing you. And it's part of the reason why you won the Cold War and then lost to yourself in the next 30 years as you allowed every stupid idea that ever came out of Moscow to take hold in your schools with the additional wrinkle that you applied it to stuff that even hardcore commies didn't, like your genitalia. Generally speaking, uh, the Marxists were happy to take genitalia as they found them. It took America uh, to make uh, genitalia the latest front in an ideological war. At some point, at some point, at some point, the fellas on the talk radio talking about, you know, who's your favorite superhero and what did you think of the Super Bowl? Oh, and, you know, the, the outrage du jour. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. Oh, we're not calling it Cracker Jack now because we love women, so we're creating Cracker Jills. And so now it's buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jill. <laughs> they don't... They're just doing that to wind you up. Why rise to the bait every time? You know, talk about something real and you've lost your country. Try getting it back. Try getting it back by talking about something that matters. It's, it's kind of pathetic. Uh, it's kind of pathetic, all that. But anyway, I, uh, I, I think... I think I wrote I wrote about it. It's like on page three of America Alone. The whole the whole problem with so-called victory in the Cold War was that we didn't treat it as such. Uh, and that is a great problem uh, for which we are paying the price right now because we spent 30 years thinking we're so big, so butch, nothing can get us. And we've been hollowed out from within. A little bit of music. There we go. We, let's see. We, got a, uh, we, we should have closed with a jollier question. We've got a jollier question. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, no, I don't see any. Uh, it's, like, it's all Grimsville. Uh, oh, I didn't realize that. Robert Fox says Caitlyn Jenner has been hired as a Fox News contributor. That's right. <laughs> That's American conservatism uh, for you uh, right there. Let's see if we've got... Uh, I think the this is incredible. There are no, uh, there are no, uh, there are no. Oh, there's a question here about Eric Dale. Uh, is that sad that we've done that? Uh, what do we got here? Uh, Eric, uh, 
the American preoccupation on how history will judge us, I think is a primary contributing factor to the squandering of the American moment, says Peter. Oh, well, we'll leave it at that. I thought, well, can we have a jolly question? I like your, uh, 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 there's a lot of jolly ones we don't get to at Stump the Stein on uh, GB News. Um, maybe I'll have to bring one of those in for a closing question. So instead, we'll close with a bit of music. This isn't terribly jolly either, actually. Uh, I last talked with Boris Brott at a uh, small party in Montreal uh, a couple of years back after a concert at Place des Arts. He'd been conducting the McGill Chamber Orchestra for my friend Dorothy Berryman. You'll have heard her on our Christmas shows or our Frank Lesser special, or you may have seen her in the Oscar-winning film Barbarian Invasions. Dorothy was singing Gershwin and so forth in chamber arrangements. She stood rather still on stage, and he swayed luxuriantly behind her. He was a small, rotund, jolly man, gnome-like, uh, with a big smile and always irrepressible and enthusiastic. At the party, um, I queried something in one of the orchestrations, and instead of flouncing off in a huff, he wanted me to teach a class on arranging at some festival he was doing in the Rockies or something. Uh, he'd worked with every musical figure in Canada, going back to Glenn Gould, and he conducted widely far beyond at the proms and at Covent Garden, uh, he came from a great musical family. His dad was a conductor, his brother's a cellist, and through his energy and enthusiasm, he did a lot for music and music education, which is in a sorry state in Canada as elsewhere. On Tuesday, he was killed by a hit-and-run driver at the junction of Markland Street and Park Street in Hamilton, Ontario. I hate hit and runs, and they are too much with me right now. This afternoon, uh, my youngest kid was at the funeral of a school chum killed by another contemptible hit and run driver in southern New England. That one is still at large. Boris Brot's killer was found and arrested, a man called Arsenia Lorovich. Um, here is Boris with his beloved McGill Chamber Orchestra conducting a little Hatcheturian from the Masquerade Suite.
the Nocturne from Hatchaturian's Masquerade Suite, uh, rearranged for uh, chamber forces and played there by the McGill Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Boris Brott, a man full of life, cut down by some hit-and-run driver. We'll have more music, plus Rick McGuinness's movie pick, plus our continuing tale for our time by Anthony Trollope, The Fixed Period, all coming up at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.